0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, be sharing with you. It really is a a privilege to be reflecting on the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, um, particularly on this Easter Sunday morning in the middle of these terrible circumstances that we find ourselves in, um, a global COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And it is awful. Um, Globally, thousands of people are losing their lives, Millions are losing their livelihoods. Governments, of course, are doing their very best to respond to circumstance that no one has experienced in living memory. And I guess all of us are also doing our best to cope with circumstances that we never would have dreamed would impact our lives and our lifestyles to the degree that they have. It's a little bit like the whole world is grieving the loss of life as we know it or knew it. But I think it's also important that we remember that what we are experiencing isn't entirely new. This certainly isn't the first time in world history that people have experienced life-threatening pandemics. Now, just in case you have no idea who I am, which is a likely scenario, Simon Gomisle is my name. I'm one of the lecturers at Trinity College, Queensland. Uh, My formal title is Lecturer in Historical and Contemporary Mission, uh, which means that I have the privilege of teaching, amongst other things, church history, and I want to draw on that to some degree as we seek this morning to look at the events of our world through the eyes of Easter. How do the cross and resurrection inform our thinking and speaking and acting at a time like this? Now, not surprisingly, I would contest that they offer us a primary point of reference in both making sense out of life at this time and figuring out how we respond to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Um, In this sense, Easter is both a, a promise and a prompt. But let me just reflect historically for a moment. Um, in 165 and 251 CE, two plagues swept through the Roman Empire. No one knows exactly what the diseases were. Some speculate it was smallpox or measles, uh, both of which can be deadly to non-resistant populations. But what we do know is that on these two separate occasions, these plagues, which lasted for about 15 years, claimed somewhere between a quarter to one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire. Uh, they were absolutely devastating. But I want to highlight this morning the way the early church reacted to these events. Remember that in the second and third centuries, the Christian church was really still very young. It was rapidly growing, to be sure, but it was still a loosely organized collection of communities worshipping in people's homes, held together basically by three things. One, the apostles' writings, which were widely distributed amongst the churches, and those eventually came to be gathered into what we call the New Testament. Two, it was held together by itinerant leaders who travelled from church to church, carrying these documents with them, but also preaching, encouraging, uh, supporting, affirming, sharing faith and ideas. And thirdly, most importantly, the early church was held together by the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, transforming people's lives, calling them to prayer, illuminating the apostles' teaching and making Jesus directly and immediately known to individuals and communities who had never heard of him before and making him known through the witness and preaching of those whose lives had been transformed. And this simple agenda led to remarkable growth. It's been estimated the the early church experienced 30 to 40% growth per decade, so that by the time Christianity was finally recognized as an official religion of the Roman Empire in the early part of the fourth century, something like uh, 20% of the entire Roman population was Christian. And sociologists believe that The Christian response to plagues was a critical factor in contributing to that growth. So how would that be so? Why would that be the case? Well there are probably three reasons for that. Uh, First of all, in the days before social security, the church was perhaps the world's first organically formed welfare safety net. Uh, The churches of the early centuries acted as communities of support for their members. When Christians ran out of money or lost their fortunes, their brothers and sisters in Christ took them in and gave them food. When they got sick, members of the church cared for them. This meant that in the circumstances of a terrible plague, higher percentages of Christians survived than did their pagan counterparts. And to the world looking in at the church, that looked like a miracle in itself. So the church's internal mechanisms of care came to the fore in this sort of crisis, which aroused the interest and attention of many who practiced pagan religions. That's the first reason. Second, in the circumstances of the plagues, Christians powerfully enacted their faith. They lived out their faith in profound ways. We have an historical account of the plague of 251 from a bishop called Dionysius who worked in Alexandria and about 10 years after the plague uh, wrote these words. Let me read them to you. He says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The heathen, though, behaved in the opposite way. At the first onset of the disease they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest throwing them into the roads before they were dead and and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease um, but they found it difficult to escape now that's a very stark description um contrasting the way that christians and pagans responded to the needs around them and just in case we think this is an overly optimistic account of the church's behavior perhaps written by you know an insider with a hidden agenda we also have ancient accounts written by christianity's opponents describing the sacrificial caring that christians offered Um, writing some time after dionysius julian the apostate who was a a Roman emperor against Christianity wrote this. He said, Christianity has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. These godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So in times of devastating plague, the gospel advanced. One, because the church modeled for the world the dynamics of being a community of radical care, we might say. Two, because Christians sacrificially stepped forward to serve and care for their their pagan neighbours. And three, because in this circumstance, the gospel offered a more hopeful and powerful experience explanation of reality than did other religions. What do we mean by that, a more powerful explanation? Well, if you were a pagan living in ancient times and your world was overrun by plague and pestilence, the normal assumption you would make is that one of the gods had sent this. One of the gods has been angled Angered and the disease and the, and the punishment uh, is, is the, the plague. And so to overcome that, you would have to offer them a sacrifice. The question is, which God is angry? Which God has been offended? And even if you do find the right God, how will you know how much to sacrifice? Will it be the right kind of sacrifice? It was incredibly stressful trying to figure out the answers to these sort of questions in a world dominated by pagan transactional religions. And so usually in a plague, the pagan priests would run to the hills like everyone else, having no idea what to do and really no advice to offer anyone. But the Christians told a different story. They said it's not that there are many capricious gods and that we have to find the right one to sacrifice to. Rather, they said there is one God who loves us. And in the midst of a world that has been fundamentally broken and disrupted by human sin, a world that's out of step with its creator, that is the underlying cause of human suffering and pain and misery. I mean, that's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 21. He talks of the creation hopefully being liberated from its bondage to decay. He says, we we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So it's not that plague testifies to the specific anger and judgment of a vengeful God toward me and my family. But rather the pain and the suffering that we all experience is a consequence of living in a broken world. And the idea that frees Christians to be difference makers in this environment that that liberates us to serve sacrificially and to be salt and light is the knowledge that God is for us. If we have humbled ourselves before him, acknowledging his sovereignty in our lives, repenting towards God, trusting in Jesus and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we can confidently say that God is for us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, In Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. Jesus is God's yes to us. And what that means is that regardless of whether your circumstances are terrible or wonderful, regardless whether the plague takes your life or spares you, God's love for you is totally unchanged. He loves you as much in the bad circumstances as the good, but how can we know that? How can we be sure of that? It sure doesn't feel like God loves me while you know I'm fighting for my life with measles or smallpox or cancer or muscular dystrophy or COVID-19. Of course, our confidence is found not in trying to read the circumstances of our lives, but in the objective reality of what God has already done for us. And that's why Easter changes everything. God entered this world in the person of Jesus and gave his life so that we who are a part of this broken world, who contribute to its brokenness with our choices and words and actions and our self-interest so that we could be restored to God, so that we could be in relationship with him again as forgiveness flows down to us from the cross, as the promise of a life beyond this one is assured in the resurrection and is guaranteed to us as God pours out his spirit at Pentecost, sealing and stamping not only the first disciples, but also us as belonging to him. And that's why nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ that's what Romans 8 says neither death nor life uh, neither angels nor demons neither uh, what is it the present or the future nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord we might add neither employment or unemployment neither health nor sickness. Not even COVID-19 can separate us from the love of God that comes to us in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I had a fascinating conversation with my son, Alistair, who's in his senior year at Brisbane Boys College. Um, And this happened about a fortnight before the school shut. Now, like most of his peers, Al's been feeling deeply discouraged and grieved by the impact that coronavirus has already had and will continue to have on his final year. Everything has or is being cancelled. The cricket season was abruptly halted. The football season will be cancelled. Uh, the school plays being cancelled. The year 12 formals been cancelled. Old boys days been cancelled. All of these things that the boys have been looking forward to for years uh, have just been taken from them. But one day recently, he hopped in the car after school and I picked him up and, and suddenly seemed quite upbeat. And I asked him what was going on and he said, Dad, I've just realised how much opportunity there is in the world at the moment. And he went on to relay a conversation that he had with two students at school, students who had the lead role in the school musical. They'd been rehearsing for months. It was a joint production with St. Aidan's Girls School, full day Sunday rehearsals, just a few weeks out from the performance. And in a moment, the whole thing's cancelled and Al offered to pray for these boys in their distress. They were surprised, but they said, well, okay. Uh, And Al prayed for them, and that led to a lengthy conversation where Al was able to reflect with the boys that their value, their identity was based not so much on their ability to perform dramatically. Their value and identity were actually found in the regard and the action of their creator toward them. If the resurrection provides for us a point of certainty and security in this swirling, chaotic world, then I can pretty confidently say that God wants us to share that certainty, that security, that hope with others as well. The resurrection is not only a promise to us, it's also a prompt. It prompts us to maybe pick up our phone and just call a couple of people each day to check how they're going in these isolated circumstances. It prompts us to touch base with our neighbors to see if we can help or support them, pick up some medication or even just provide a listening ear as they process their own worries and fears. It prompts us maybe to bake some biscuits or make a card and drop it into someone who might be more lonely than usual because they simply can't get out. There are a thousand creative ways we can pass on the love that God offers to us. So I want to say happy Easter, everyone. Let's enjoy the promise. Let's celebrate the promise that resurrection offers to us. But let's also prayerfully see how it might prompt us to demonstrate the resurrection's truth and reality and power as we look to care for others at this time of unprecedented opportunity.